Hello and welcome to Policy Pod, a podcast from the University of Southampton's Knowledge Brokerage Unit, Public Policy Southampton. My name is Giles, I'm your host, and I have the pleasure of leading Public Policy Southampton, where we work to enhance the local, sub-national, national and international policy impacts of research conducted at the University of Southampton. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Lynn Kalman. Lynn is an Associate Professor of Nursing, and she's also the Deputy Director of the Macmillan Survivorship Research Group within Health Sciences at the University of Southampton. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Can you tell us a bit more about your background and your career history as a researcher? So I started life as a nurse. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in nursing in Edinburgh in the uh, early 1990s and I worked clinically for a number of years. And during that process, I got the opportunity to do a little bit of research down in London at the Institute of Psychiatry, and that really sparked my interest in research. So after having worked clinically for a couple of years or a few years, I decided that um, I'd like to explore a research career, um, research job um, at the University of Edinburgh, and then followed that on with my PhD. And since then, I've been working very much on and research career uh, in a number of different universities, University of Glasgow, then the University of Manchester, where I was able to um, get a postdoctoral fellowship from the Medical Research Council looking at how lung cancer patients are followed up after their treatment. And from there, then moved down to the University of Southampton to the Macmillan Survivorship Research Group because at the, the time and, and now um, there are a large and important research group working in the field. And I really wanted to be here and, and work and collaborate with the people who were in the research group. So I moved down to Southampton um, specifically with, with the purpose of, of collaborating and working with the team um, in health sciences. So a lovely drift from the middle of Scotland all the way down to the south coast. Tell me a bit more about the Macmillan Survivorship Research Group. How long has it been running for and what are the components at play? Yeah, so we've had funding from Macmillan since around 2006 and the programme has grown and grown over time. I think one of the the really pivotal things within the research group was a a study that was done um, in the mid-2000s which uh, focused on the research priorities of people who were living with and beyond cancer And it was really innovative at the time. The research team went out to patients, carers, clinicians around the country to try and work out um, what the most important things to them um, in terms of research were, what were the research priorities. So that's very usual now to involve people in research, but at the time it it was really quite innovative. And the important finding that came from that was that what was most important to people was living with their everyday life and and um the the questions that were coming out weren't necessarily about what's the newest treatment um uh, how can i survive longer but how can i survive well and how can i live um every day with the consequences of both cancer and its treatment so we we published that and that was really um important in terms of some um work that was done um in terms of the health service and the government the national cancer survivorship initiative which started in 2010 and the piece of research was really pivotal in acknowledging that survivor cancer survivorship living with and beyond cancer was a really important part of the the cancer pathway so since then we've continued our funded funding with Macmillan, uh, uh, is really as a major, what we call psycho-oncology programme of research in the UK. Um, We have run a number of very large cohort studies of people living with and 
We've also run uh, a number of studies to try and support people both with making decisions and to self-manage some of the symptoms that they might experience after cancer treatment. So it's a large programme of research. It's very multidisciplinary. So we've got people um, from clinical backgrounds as well as psychology, sociology, health services research. So um, there's around 30 of us in the team. So it's it's grown from a very small group to a, a really large research So Lynn, we've group. been working together for a couple of years now on a variety of different projects. And I remember back in the early months of, uh, of lockdown one, you reached out to say, we've got some COVID stuff and we think that it's important. Tell us about your pivot to COVID research and how that has sat alongside the Macmillan Survivorship Research Group. Yeah, so in uh, 20, um, must have been 2018 now, we started some research, um, the self-management needs um, and outcomes for people who are living with incurable cancer. Um, people with incurable cancer, there, there's been some, because of course, as cancer treatment has improved, treatment for people who are living with advanced cancer, incurable cancer has also in um, improved. So we now have this group of people who we might call um, treatable but not curable cancer patients and they're a really important and growing group of people now who are living quite long term. People can be living years now with incurable cancer on, on multiple treatments and as new treatments and trials come on of course people um, uh, will, will be living longer. So we wanted to explore this particular group of of people um, who are living long term, as I say, with incurable disease. So we had got some funding from Macmillan um, uh, in one of their project grants, which I'm leading to explore those needs. And the two phases of the project, but the phase I'll, I'll talk about in particular is we um, decided to do some longitudinal qualitative interviews, which is relatively unusual in qualitative research. So we, we follow people over time to see how they're doing because we felt this was really important because it was likely that these patients um, uh, needs would change over time as, as maybe they became more unwell. What size of group were you working with at that stage? Around it was 30 patients, slightly fewer study that we wanted to um, have patients but the people who they felt they got most support from because we know with this um, from previous research and previous research I've been involved with the carers are really important in terms of that support. It's it's not just the patient, but it's the whole family who are engaged in supporting people um, living with incurable cancer. So we recruited both patients, small numbers, but qualitative research um, is around the richness of the detail. So it's not about statistical generalizability and lots and lots of people involved. It's around getting to the heart of the experiences of, of people with small numbers, but very in-depth interviews with those over time. So when the pandemic, um, well, when we had the first lockdown last year in March, we um, had done a number of those interviews. We'd done every, everybody had had their first interview. And, and the idea was we were doing, as say, three interviews over the course of a year. So it, it was quite a challenging time for us because obviously a lot of research studies stopped at that point. Um, and we had to really think very hard about what our approach would be because obviously we really wanted the research to carry on. Um, people had uh, given a lot of their time already to us. And um, what we find in some of the qualitative studies is that the opportunity to talk to somebody who's not involved in their care. And actually people were saying that it was they were finding it 
quite a, a helpful and interesting thing to to participate in and also this opportunity to give back and obviously we didn't um, want to take that opportunity but on the other side of things obviously the pandemic the beginning of the pandemic was very stressful for everybody very stressful um, for the participants who obviously you know are, are living with an incurable disease so didn't want to put additional pressure on them so one of the things that we did was we went to our user reference group and this is a group of people who've been involved uh, really since the start of the study to help advise us. So these are people who are experts by experience. So obviously we are experts by our research methods, knowledge or our clinical knowledge. But these are people who have who have lived this experience and are living this experience and um, can give us lots of helpful advice. There's always a collective intake of breath when having to change ethics approvals. How did you find the process of changing the study mid-flight against the background of lockdown one? Well, under usual circumstances, it would have been a, a, a quite a tedious and lengthy process. But in fact, um, the the HRA, who, who kind of govern all the, the research um, governance issues within um, NHS, uh, took a very pragmatic view during the pandemic. Obviously, anything that was non-COVID stopped um, and anything where you were able to add some COVID related um, uh, issues to your research was expedited. So actually, it was a very painless process to go in and, and make the the um, the kind of the claim that this is uh, uh, COVID related and actually quickly. So it, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. The thing which really struck me with this research group is that pausing and thinking, how do we go forward with this work during the current crisis and how do we adapt to this to be able to understand better people's experience of lockdown one, particularly being able to find out their concerns and understanding the quality of support which they've received. There's a real sense of a coalition of the willing of the participants wanting to keep working with the researchers and the researchers wanting to keep working with the participants. How have you overcome the new hurdles and what are your reflections from those early days? Yeah, I would absolutely agree. I think it's been one of the the positives, if you could say that, from the pandemic is that things that might have taken a long time, people did. I mean, it's patients or, or participant safety is clearly really very important, and that was at the heart of everybody's concerns. But the the pragmatic approach that everybody took, the collaboration, the um, the willingness of everybody just to um, to keep the study going, and and knowing that. Um, this could um, elicit really important information about about um, these uh, participants was was extremely important. So yeah, so if there's a positive there for research, there are lots of negatives for research. I would have to say, but but for me, one of the positives was the the collaboration and the willingness for people just to say, right, how do we do it? Let's get it done, and and we managed to do that very quickly. So clearly face-to-face -face contact was out. How did you overcome the, the distance? Were you using Teams or phone? How did you get around to actually having the conversations with individuals? Yeah, so I, I think one of the, the really good things about the research was that we'd already had one conversation with people face-to-face. -face. So they, they knew the research team, they knew the researchers, they, they kind of understood that um, how, how it all worked. So, so I think it would be more challenging had we not done any interviews with people before to, to build that rapport. We qualitative research about the rapport that we build with participants. And actually the researchers, I mean, great credit to them for, for the rapport that they did manage to um, uh, make with the participants and that they all wanted to continue on. So we already had that existing relationship. So we just had to turn that into... Um, 
a telephone conversation rather than face-to-face. And then in terms of the frequency of the conversations, how often were these happening and how many of them were you having? Yeah, so uh, this was very much an, an opportunistic sample during um, the the lockdown that we had. So what we did was we approached everybody who was due their next interview. Um, and so that was uh, 12 patients and nine carers um, who were due their interview in that period of time. And it might be their second interview or their third interview um, because of the way people were recruited over time. And actually everybody who was approached in that time who was able to take part in the interview um, took part. So we, we were able to do 12 patient interviews and nine care interviews over that time to 2021, 20, nice, rich, in-depth interviews. We, we have lost some participants along the way as, as we anticipated. Um, one of uh, the things we did at the beginning was to have, it's quite a big sample actually of 30 patients and 30 carers was our initial Aim, but that was because we knew that obviously are unwell and um, might not survive the year. So, so we have had a number of patients who have participated who have died um, throughout the, 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 the study we approached during that lockdown period um, was really willing to take part. So we were, we were really exceptionally grateful for that. It's such a difficult time for people. And all the more so for participants to be able to find the energy and the motivation to continue the conversations. Can you talk us through some of the things that you've been able to identify from the patients and from carers and how that's being used to inform clinical practice going forward? Yeah, of course. So um, I think one of the things that, that we know a little bit from the literature already and also came through very clearly from the initial interviews is that people who are, are living with, with incurable, treatable but not curable cancer, one of their, their aims in life is very much to, to maintain independence, normality and control over their lives. And of course, we all experience a lack of control and uncertainty during the pandemic. And that really has magnified the experience of these, of these participants. Um, they talked, uh, the participants talked a lot about lost opportunities. So as I say, maintaining independence, being able to do what you really want to do is, is so important for people. And uh, like all of us, but again, it's very much magnified for this group of people. Um, they did lose opportunities to, for things that were really important for them to do um, in the limited time that they had left to live. So of course, these people are living with a life-limiting condition. And so therefore, things that you've planned take on a, 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 a maybe a greater significance. And living with the uncertainty and not being able to do that was, was really challenging for people. And this, of course, had a, a psychological impact on people. Um, it's very challenging to live with uncertainty. Uh, and so this had an impact on, on, on people's psychological well-being. There was also um, a social impact. Again, um, people weren't able to do things that were important to them, uh, participate in social activities, um, that often help people maintain a self a sense of purpose when you're living with an incurable disease. So, for example, many of our participants, both patients and carers, took part in voluntary work, clubs, classes, things like outdoor exercise, which were really important. And that, of course, all had to stop um, uh, during the lockdown. Um, the other thing that, that we noted at 
uh, in our kind of key findings was the impact um, that this had on, on healthcare and, and healthcare use. Patients really did feel very well supported by their healthcare teams. As we know, most of the healthcare during that period went from face-to-face um, -to, -face to online or by telephone and uh, the participants were generally very supportive of the phone consultations that they were having. But one of the important things that, that did um, was raised during the interviews was the concerns that participants had about the longer-term impact um, on changes of aspects of the treatment. So none of the participants had their treatment stopped but for many of them, the treatment regime changed a little bit. Maybe they had um, treatment less often or in a slightly different way um, in order to, to reduce risk. And, and of course, again, that was a real priority for healthcare at the time was reducing the risk for these very uh, clinically extremely vulnerable group. All of the participants, um, all of the patients in the group were shielding. So therefore, that, that did put them in the extremely clinically vulnerable group. And that was, um, I think, very central to the way that healthcare changed over um, over the pandemic. But as I say, what was important was that there was concern about what, what would be the long term impact of some of the changes of treatment. So again, face to face appointments were lost, some treatment regimes were changed and um, some tests, for example, didn't necessarily go ahead during that period of time as well. I think one of the other things that, that came through the data, just as I was talking about shielding there, was some of the concerns about the, the, the difficulty and complexity of shielding. Obviously, both patients and carers who participated in the study um, very much um, were, were for shielding, felt that it was a really important. Um, but actually, the, the government guidelines at the time were very complex about not sharing cutlery and, um, you know, using different bathrooms and all sorts of things that actually are, are not very practical for people and very challenging and worrying. And the carers who participated in particular um, had increased worry about the risk that they were posing to patients um, when obviously they were having to go out and do the shopping, for example, collecting prescriptions, do, doing the things that, that were absolutely necessary during that time. And then, of course, the great concern about bringing COVID back to um, to the patient as well. So that was a, a real increased worry for the carers. Um, there were other impacts on the carers, which I think are, are really important to um, mention. So some carers were experiencing a higher burden of care um, because they lost access to some of the things that were supporting them. So, for example, carers often um, had some respite, um, maybe with a carer coming in or going to a, a support group or something. And of course, that stopped. Um, but also informal sources of, of care. So not just the health services changed, but of course, families couldn't come and visit. So maybe somebody who got some support from a, a son or daughter or a friend, you know, to give them a break for a couple of hours a week, um, that all stopped as well. So there was real impact in terms of the, the support that, that carers got from both the formal health services and, and um from uh, informal sources as well. It's a really useful overview of the outcomes for patients and carers. I'm interested in how this might go on to support clinicians and changes in practice in the future. 
what are the key messages for clinicians from this work? Yeah, thanks. So I, th- I think one of the things that the the research does and, and the data does is to shine a light on the experiences of people who are um, living with treatable but not curable cancer during the pandemic. So I think it's really important that clinicians have a good sense of the things that are worrying and concerning them and um, areas in which they could uh, be supported. That said, I think it is important to say that um, patients were very positive about the um, the care that they were receiving. They felt very well supported. And uh, that, that's really um, important for clinicians to know that, that, that what they're doing, the telephone conversations are, are working very well for people. I think one of the challenges about consultations is that it's been very difficult for carers to be involved in those. Um, so if patients have been going into the clinical setting, they've they've had to go alone. They've not really been able to take anybody with them, which has been challenging for both patient support and for family involvement um, in care. Of course, many families want to are a unit and, and want to be very much involved in patient care. And also when the calls have been on, the telephone uh, is again been very difficult for carers maybe to to take part in those conversations as well so one of our recommendations has been about how we can find um, innovative or creative ways of involving carers and families uh, in consultations remain feeling involved and supported as well we again we can see from the data that that carers need additional support and help during this time. Uh, And so it would also make sure that um, those needs are are raised at consultations. You mentioned a list of recommendations from the research projects and the link for the website will be in the show notes today. Armed with these recommendations you've developed based on your research, what's the next step for taking those forward? Who have you been speaking to? Uh, One of the things that we've done with this piece of work, which is um, a slightly different approach from us, is that we've gone to... um, uh, disseminating the findings without having written a peer-reviewed paper, although that's in process, but um, it's not out there yet, because we felt these findings were so important that we didn't want to wait for the time it can take to publish and get things out to the academic community, that we wanted to go straight to some of our other uh, very important audiences. So that's why our report is clinicians, um, hopefully it's, it's useful for patients as well, but also policymakers. So we've been doing a lot of work with our our local cancer alliance. So uh, in England, um, it's the country's split up into regional cancer alliances who are responsible for um, developing um, and designing cancer services. And we've been working very closely with our our local Wessex Cancer Alliance, as well as um, more broadly the cancer alliances around to make sure that we get this, this data um, and findings and recommendations out to positive things in those presentations that the clinicians are, um, because this is a, a rigorous way of, of collecting this sort of data, that the um, these are hunches that clinicians have, these are the things that they think are important to patients, but actually seeing this data um, and presenting the way we have has been really important for them to, to think about how they can develop services. We've also been making sure that we are in contact with some of the the policy groups and with um, the parliamentary groups on cancer as well, because obviously there's a a national response now, recovery strategy for cancer, and we think that the findings are really important for that, as well as the all-party parliamentary groups as well. We've been contacting them. 
the other thing, of course, that we've been doing is this is research that's funded by Macmillan, and we've been working very closely with their policy um, department uh, in uh, Macmillan to try and make sure that um, any of the work that they're doing um, uh, around COVID and the impact of COVID is um, uses this as an evidence base. Uh, and that's been really important moving forward as well. So we've been trying to make sure that we don't just go for our traditional academic audiences. In fact, they're the last to receive this data now, but we've really gone out um, and tried to make sure that we engage with, with the public as well and policy too around it and clinicians. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Lynn. It's been a great whistle-stop tour through the process of Enable turning itself to focus on the challenge of COVID-19 and rapidly and sympathetically delivering outcomes that can be applicable to clinicians almost immediately. So thanks again there to Lynn for finding the time to be able to speak to us. As mentioned, the links for the project are in the show notes. I've been Giles. This has been Policy Pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and recommend wherever you get your podcast. It really does help to make us more visible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the patience, perseverance and positivity of Taya Kuriaki in Public Policy Southampton, Kate Briggs-Price and Ben McQuig in Keep Busy Productions. Our music is by University of Southampton composition student Paul Forster. If you want to find out more about our work, you can find us on Twitter at Public Policy UOS, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Public Policy UOS, and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash showcase forward slash Public Policy UOS. Until next time, goodbye!